Yeah, how many of you know what the Pop-Tart is? You know what the pop how many of you know what the Pop-Tart is? If, you have a, if you've never had a Pop-Tart, you need to try one at least once. It, one won't kill you, two might. But if you're in a hurry, you can microwave it. Step number two, I'm gonna throw it up on the screen. Microwave on high setting for three seconds! <laughs> three seconds! If you have to make breakfast in three seconds, you're probably scheduling your day too tightly. This is, this is what I'm saying. Welcome to Church of the Rock from Winnipeg. Stay tuned to this week's thought-provoking message from Pastor Mark Hughes. So this morning I'm starting a little two-part message, two-part series is all it is, and it's called When the Tough Gets Going. Did you hear that? When the tough gets going. Not to be confused, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. We all hear that expression. That's the world's expression. That doesn't really work for me. Uh, for one thing, who are these tough people? <laughs> who are these tough people? I'm looking around the room. I don't see too many tough people. I see a bunch of soft people. And I, I don't say that in a pejorative way. Uh, you know, because the tough aren't going to inherit the, the, the world or the earth, right? Who's going to inherit the world? Yeah, the meek are going to inherit. And, you know, when I think of uh, growing up, you remember this. Who are the tough guys? And they were the bullies, right? Do you really want to be one of these bullies? And, you know, my experience was this, that when the going got tough, the not-so-tough ran away. And <laughs> you all know what I'm talking about. And, uh, you know, I mean, now I know you look at me and you think I'm super tough because, you know, here I am at my age and I'm, you know, I'm super ripped and cut and uh, jacked and buff and you, you, you get it, all those things. Uh, but actually, I'm a Georgie boy. You say, well, what's the Georgie bar? Well, you remember, Georgie Porgy putting in pie, kissed the girls and made them cry. And when the boys came out to play, Georgie Porgy ran away. And that's sort of who I am. Tell you about a little thing that happened just last night. Kathy and I had this, you know, shakedown royal fight last night, a big one, big blowout. It is terrible, I'm, I just got to tell you. But we finally resolved it when she came to me crawling on her hands and knees. <laughs> yeah. and, and you know what she said to me? Come out from under that bed and fight like a man. That's, that's, that's what she said. So I want to begin today by sharing a little principle with you that you all know. And when I share it with you, you're going to all say, yeah, you know, that's true. You're not going to want to believe it. You don't want to believe it. You certainly don't want to live it. But when I share it with you, you're going to actually agree that it's true. And here's a little principle that has been proven. They've done research on it. You ready for this one? You're not going to like it. And here it is, that things usually get worse before they get better. It's a principle in life, and you know, we always think, you know, we have a little bump in the road, and the next thing that's going to happen is things are going to get better. No, that's usually not what happens. Usually you have one little dip in the road, and then another dip, and another dip, and those of you that are in the stock market know it's called the, the Elliott Wave Theory, and when there's a correction in the stock market, it doesn't go down once, it goes down three times before it bottoms out and then starts coming back up again, and things generally get worse before they get better. And, you know, I, I love what R.C. Sproul said. Someone came to him, he's a great theologian, and uh, someone came to him one day and said, uh, I have a question for you. Why do bad things happen to good people? You know what he said? I wouldn't know. I don't know any good people. <laughs> and that's a great answer. But let me explain something to you. That is the big question. It is the big objection people have for the existence of God. If God is good, why does he allow bad things in the world? It, it's a fair question, actually. 
And there's a longer answer, and that's not my intent today to try to answer it, but the very short answer is this, is that we live in a fallen, broken world. Evil exists. We live in the dynamic tension between God and the devil, between good and evil. And it's not the fact that we're going to live without adversity in this world. It's about whether we're going to press into God and whether we're going to overcome the evil that exists. That's the more important question. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at a verse you, you all know. You've all read it many times. I've actually preached on it many times. It's, it's James chapter 1. But I'm telling you, it is the most insightful scripture in all of the Bible on how to deal with adversity in life. And it's important. I think it's incumbent upon us to go back to it again and again and to press into it. So it's, it's James. James, of course, is actually the brother of Jesus, the biological brother, half-brother, I guess, because his father was Joseph and Jesus' father was the father in heaven. And it's not James of the apostles. He, he died in the book of Acts. This James is the brother of Jesus. And he tells us things that nobody else tells us in Scripture. He has some insights that you won't find in any other Bible. And this is how he starts off in James chapter 1, verse 2. He said, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. What does this James know that we don't know? Count it all joy when you fall into various trials? Yeah, yeah, we all do that, right? You do that? When something bad happens, you do that? You break the air like, woohoo! I broke my leg. You lost your job? Yeah, I lost my job. Some of you wouldn't cheer. You, you lose your house. They, they foreclose on your house. Woohoo! I lost my house. Your wife leaves you. Oh, never mind. Yeah. <laughs> Enough wife jokes for one day. We'll just leave that one where it is. So here's what I want to do. I want to look at this. I want to look at how we deal with adversity in life. And so I'm going to throw it up on the screen. And here's, here's when the going gets tough, here's what we need to do. Number one, embrace adversity. Number two, exercise patience. Number three, engage faith. So I want to talk about this first one, because he says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. You know what he's telling us to do? He's telling us to embrace it. Do you ever, ever, ever hear anybody preaching on embracing adversity? You do not hear that. You will hear people talk about resisting it and enduring it and persevering through it. But who actually tells us to embrace it? Well, James does. And I'm telling you today. And you say, I don't understand. Now, don't, don't get confused here. I'm not telling you to surrender to adversity. I'm not telling you to be defeated by adversity. I'm telling you what you need to do is recognize that it's part of our journey, and we embrace it and say, how can I ride through this and come through the other end successful? That's what we're talking about. Now, how many of you are old enough to remember Ann Landers, the, the advice columnist? A bunch of you remember. Syndicated for years and years. She's passed away now. But she had one piece of advice that she said was her most important thing that she would ever give to anybody, and I brought it for you. I'm going to throw it up on the screen. This is what she says. If I were asked to give what I consider the single most useful bit of advice for all humanity, it would be this. Expect trouble as an inevitable part of life. Look it squarely in the eye and say, I will be bigger than you. You cannot defeat me. She said, my best advice to you is to embrace adversity, because it's going to come, and it is an inevitable part of life. And the bigger question is not whether you're going to face adversity or not, but what are you going to do with it when it comes? 
So I'm going to tell you another story you all know today from Scripture. And again, it's probably the best story to illustrate this. And it's the story of Joseph. Now remember Joseph. Joseph has this dream. He's one of 12 brothers. He's the second youngest. And he's one of these 12 brothers. And he has this dream. And there's these sheaves. And they're bowing down to his sheave. And he understands the interpretation is that his brothers and his parents are all going to bow down to him. It's a great vision for a young person to have. And, and so, you know, he was so excited about it, he shares it with his older brothers. Here's my first bit of advice. Be careful who you share your dreams with. You know, not everybody's going to like it, right? And so anyway, he's, I don't know why he was so stupid, but anyway, he shares this dream of for what's going to happen, and his brothers are going to bow down towards him and his father and mother. And they were incensed. They were not as blessed as he was about it. And so this is what happens. First of all, they threw him into a pit. They threw him into the pit and they said, well, let him, we'll leave him there. Let the lions or tigers come and eat him. So they left him. Then they said, no, no, that's, that's too cruel. What we'll do is sell him off as a slave. Yeah, that's better. And so they sell him to slave traders. And then the slave traders take him to Egypt. And he's now a slave in Egypt. Are you noticing how things are getting worse and worse and worse for him? Not better at this point. And then, of course, he has a little bit of an altercation with his master's wife where she accuses him of rape which didn't happen it was falsely accused and he goes from being a slave to now being a prisoner in a dungeon are you noticing that he's still moving down he's still it's still getting worse and worse and worse and there's no signs yet of it getting any better but here's the most amazing part to me that when he was still a slave, this is what it says, it's in uh, Genesis 39, verse 2, and it says this, and the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a very successful man. He was a, he was a slave, and he became a very successful man. Why? Because the Lord was with him, and because he pressed in, and he embraced adversity, and God allowed him to be a successful man even in the midst of that adversity. So then he ends up in the dungeon, and there's the second verse, and it says, And the Lord was with Joseph, and everything he did prospered. <laughs> now he's in prison, prospering. And you, and you, and you, look, and you look at this, and you say, how is, this, how is this possible? See, when we embrace the journey, see, he could have resisted. What would have happened if he re resisted the journey? See, if he had done that, it he would have never bounced out of there. But he embraced it. He said, I can't change this. I'm a prisoner. I'm in a dungeon. I can't change this. But I can trust God. I can rely on God. I can be faithful to God. And God will use me. And he became a prosperous and successful man, even as a prisoner and even as a slave. And then you all remember what happened next. He interprets the dream of the Pharaoh. And he goes from the prison to the palace and he ends up being the prime minister, basically, under the pharaoh in Egypt. And then you will remember what happened. His brothers and his father and his mother came and bowed before him, seeking help in the time of famine, not recognizing who it was. And when they found out it was Joseph, they were so ashamed of themselves. And he said, don't miss it, he said, do not be angry with yourselves. Because what you meant for evil, God meant it for good. Joseph understood everything. That entire journey was God at work in his life because he embraced the adversity. You're following this, right? You don't like it, but you're following it. 
So let me ask you this question. Uh, do we have any soccer fans in the room? Any soccer fans in the room at all? Not that many, a few of you. Uh, any of you see the Netflix documentary called Beckham? Anybody seen this? this? Only a few hands. Uh, let me just say this. If you're, if you're not a soccer fan, you might not actually enjoy it that much. If you are a soccer fan, you're going to love this. It's a four-part little series. It's on the life of David Beckham and his career in, in soccer. And I'm going to tell you a little bit of the story. Uh, I'm a big soccer fan. Our son uh, was an elite-level soccer player. He and I sat and watched uh, English Premier Soccer every Saturday morning, and particularly Manchester United that David Beckham played for. And so we knew his whole career. We knew his whole journey. So we wanted to see it when this documentary came out. So here's how the story goes. He was recruited by Sir Alex Ferguson, the manager of Manchester United, when he was 12 years old. And he was in the dressing room, and then he actually started playing for the team at 17 years old. And by 23, he was a superstar in the English league. Then something happened that really caused his life to take off, and he married Victoria Adams. Anybody know who she was? <clears throat> yeah, she was Posh Spice, one of the Spice Girls. Here's a picture of their wedding. And of course, they were the, became the most famous couple in the whole wide world. They were more famous than Charles and Diane. I mean, seriously, they were absolute royalty. He was the Brill Cream guy. He had great hair, still has great hair. And, uh, and so they were incredibly famous. They were actually on top of the world. And then he gets recruited for the England team in the World Cup. And they're in the qualifying round. This is the big turning point in his life. They're in the qualifying round. He has this altercation on the field with Diago Simeone. And uh, they, here's a picture of it. And uh, he's lying on the ground. And what he does is he is sort of in a moment of frustration. He just flicks his heel, just flicks it like that. He actually misses him or maybe barely grazes him. And Diago throws himself on the ground like they do. Oh, and rolling around like he's in pain. And the ref walks over and flashes him a red card. Now, if you know anything about soccer, the red card is not a warning. It's an ejection from the game. And not only are you ejected from the game, your team now plays a man less. So now you're with 10 men instead of 11. And so he gets ejected out of the game. Of course, Argentina goes on to win. And then as a result, because it was a qualifying match, England is booted and are out of the World Cup. So just like that, it was over. He became, as a result of this, what happened was the, the coach really threw him under the bus on this one and said he was, you know, was very bad and it was a huge mistake and he wasn't very bright and he just really gave it to him. Not Alex Ferguson, the coach of the English team. And the media jumped on this and the uh, English public jumped on this. And understand something about England. Soccer isn't a sport, it's a religion. And it is a fervent religion. And he became the most hated man in England. And the tabloids said stuff like this, 10 heroic lions, one stupid boy. And people spat on him when he walked down the street. People swore at him and people threatened their lives and their family and their kids. And he went through a year of absolute uh, horror and absolute uh, uh, despair, really, because of the way he was treated by his own countrymen. Uh, so much so that every time he walked out on the pitch, every time he walked out on the pitch, they booed him. The crowd booed him and booed him. And every time he made a play, they booed him. And every time he made a bad play, they booed him. And he was the most hated man. 
And so Alex Ferguson of Manchester United said, we will be with you, we're going to stand behind you, which they did. The team stood behind him, so that was good. But England had turned against them. What do you do when you're the most hated person in England? What do you do when you're out on the soccer pitch and every time you go out, you get booed by the crowd? And he could have folded like a cheap lawn chair, but he decided that he was going to embrace it. And every time they booed, he played harder. And every time they, they booed, he, he pushed in deeper. And every time they booed, he rose to another level. And he got better and better and better. And Manchester United and David Beckham had the best year they have ever had in their entire history as a team. And they went on to win what's called a treble. A treble is when you win your league. So they won the English Premier League, and then they won the FA Cup, which was the Great Britain teams. And then they went and won the Champions League, which was the European. First and only team that had ever done it to that date in English history. And they, he went from being the pariah to the superstar in one year because he embraced the adversity. You know what the end of the story is? It's sort of interesting. In, in uh, 2000, and that was in 1998, that qualifying game. In 2002, he makes the English team again for the World Cup. And guess who they made captain? David Beckham. There he is with the yellow captain's armband. And you know, and I'm not a huge fan of David Beckham as a person. Actually, I find him self-absorbed and narcissistic. But I love this story. Because this is a story of how you embrace the adversity and you come out on the other side stronger. So the first thing is embrace adversity. The second thing is exercise patience. Look what James says. He says, but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. You know, we kind of hate this part. We hate the patient part. How long do I have to be patient? I'm sick of being patient. And you know what? That's the whole point of patience. You have to endure it for a season. And when we look at Joseph, I told you the story of Joseph where his life got worse and worse and worse and worse before it ever got better. Do you know how long that took? It was 13 years before he came out of the prison and out of slavery. And there was another nine years before his brothers and his parents showed up and bowed down to him. It was 22 years. He was 39 years old. He had to be patient for most of his life before he actually saw the fulfillment of the dream. And see, we don't really understand that because we want instant results. We're the instant results kind of people. Have you noticed that? You know what we are? We're Pop-Tart Christians. You know, how many of you know what the Pop-Tart is? You know what the pop, how many of you know what the Pop-Tart is? If, you haven't, if you've never had a Pop-Tart, you need to try one at least once. It, one won't kill you, two might. Uh, <laughs> Jerry Seinfeld calls the Pop-Tart a, 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 a frosted, jam-filled square, the exact same size and shape as the box it comes in, and the same nutritional value as the box. <laughs> he says it can't go stale because it was never fresh to begin with. <laughs> but, you know, the, the Pop-Tart is this instant breakfast food. It's ridiculous. I don't even know who the, the consumer is of this item. But you can tell from the directions who they're aiming at. So, so there's two directions. There's the toaster directions, and there's the microwave directions. So the toaster directions, if you can believe it, are three steps. The three steps to, to tell you how to toast something. And, and the first step, you'll love step number one, is remove Pop-Tart from pouch. I'm thinking, who are these people that need to be told that it needs to come out of the pouch before it goes into the toaster? And then you put it in for one and one half minutes. And you know, that's not very long for a delicious and nutritious snack like a Pop-Tart. 
But if you're in a hurry, you can microwave it. And the microwave instructions are also three steps. I'm not going to go through them all, but step number two, I'm going to throw it up on the screen, microwave on high setting for three seconds. <laughs> three seconds. If you have to make breakfast in three seconds, you're probably scheduling your day too tightly. This is, this is what I'm saying. And, and I've actually tried it as a bit of an experiment, and at three seconds, they're still frozen. I guess they're afraid of liability and you burning yourself, so you're going to end up eating a, a, you know, a frozen Pop-Tart anyway. You say, Pastor Mark, what is your point with these Pop-Tarts? <laughs> Pop-Tart Christians are people that want it now, want it instantly, and they don't have time, and I need the answer to this prayer in three seconds. Well, you know what? That's not what the Bible teaches. Let patience have its perfect work. You know what faith is? Faith is trusting and believing God whether you get the answer right away or not. And true faith is not praying and getting the answer immediately. True faith is I'm going to pray and I'm going to pray and I'm going to pray some more and if I don't get the answer instantly, it doesn't matter. I'm going to continue pressing on and in. That's what honors God. That's what faith is. You following this? And so let patience have its perfect work. Let it play out. And it's going to take some time because that's how it works. If you're going to get the answers, you need to let patience have its total work, and then you will be complete, lacking nothing. So I want to tell you a story about patience and adversity, kind of both. So, so there's this boy that's born in, in Ohio. His name is Tom. And uh, Tom really struggled right from the get-go. He had an IQ of, Q of only 81, average is, is 100. So he's below average intellect-wise. And uh, then he gets sick, he gets scarlet fever, and he ends up being out of school for two years. He goes back to school, he's way behind, he's failing like crazy. His parents pull him out of, out of school, they're trying to homeschool him, and that's not really working. He's developing behavioral problems, he's, he's aloof, he's stubborn, he shows little emotion. I think if it was to happen today, they would, you know, put him somewhere on the autism spectrum. He began these behavioral problems to the point where he burned down their barn. Uh, it wasn't going great, and then... To make matters worse, he started to lose his hearing. He was going deaf. Finally, they, after he burned down the barn, they kicked him out of the house. And he went off to the city. He was 15 years old. And he got a job working for the railway, running the telegraph, you know, the dots and the dashes. And that's the one thing, even though he was partially deaf, it was the one thing he could, he could hear. He could hear the clicks. And he figured out a way to improve the telegraph and, of course, the railway was so excited, they sent him to New York City. He started working with the New York Stock Exchange, and he improved the, the stock ticker, which you all remember from the old days, the uh, you know, analog stock ticker. He improved that, and they paid him $40,000, which was a princely sum. He was like incredibly wealthy as a young man with this great idea. And then he went on to continue to develop and innovate other things. And he came up with this device that was able to record music. He called it the phonograph. And the first song was Mary Had a Little Lamb. And then another device that could do moving pictures, not just still pictures. And it became the, the motion picture camera. And then he bought a patent from a Canadian by the name of Woodward. And it was for this lighting device. And he, he figured out a way to make the filament last longer. And of course, he called it the light bulb. Anybody know who this Tom is? Anybody this out. And of course, I'm talking about Thomas Edison is who I'm talking about. And by the end of his life, he's been considered even to this day as the greatest inventor of all time. He held 2,332 patents. And it all began as this struggling, underachieving child that was just persevered through life and became one of the world's and history's most successful people. 
And you all remember his quote. Do you remember his quote? Because people called him a genius, and he continually reminded them that he wasn't a genius. And this is what he said. He said, genius is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. Hard work, patience, endurance, you move forward. I like the way Yogi Berra, the baseball player, put it. This is my favorite one. He says, baseball is 90% mental, the other half is physical. <laughs> <laughs> So, so the first thing is this, you, you need to embrace adversity. The second thing is you need to exercise patience. And the last and final thing is this, is you need to engage faith. So if we look at it again, it says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. And faith and patience, they go hand in hand together. You've probably figured this out as I've been talking here already. But I call this James' uh, secret formula for success. And it, it's so simple. It's faith plus patience equals results. And if we understand that, that's what James is teaching us. Faith is, in itself is not enough because your faith will be tested and it will require patience. And if you can add faith and patience, you will actually see results. So I just want to close with one final story to illustrate this. So uh, some of you know that we, uh, throughout the U Ukrainian war, we've been supporting some missionaries and pastors in, in Ukraine to the sum of tens of thousands of dollars, actually. And I had an opportunity this, just this past week to meet them. And I was able to sit down with two of these pastors, uh, Andre and Dmitrov, and uh, sat down with these two men that are right in the thick of it, in the middle of pastoring churches, in the middle of a war zone in Ukraine. And I was thrilled to hear their stories, as horrific as they were. Uh, but let me share a little bit about it. So, so Andre pastors a church in the city of Zaporizhia. And Zaporizhia, I'm going to throw, show, throw the map up. So, so here's uh, southeastern uh, uh, Ukraine. There's the border of Russia. And all that pink there is all the area that's now occupied by Russia in this war that's been going on for months and months and months. And you can see to the left of the picture there, you can see Zaporizhia, where Pastor Andre is from. I want to talk about the fact that he's only 40 kilometers from the front, where the battle is raging on. They go to bed every single night to the sounds of bombs going off, and that's what puts them to sleep. And he hasn't left, and he hasn't, hasn't run away, and he's enduring this because he's on a mission. And I want to talk about, if you look at the next city over to the right there, it's Mariupol. And Mariupol it was, you remember this, because we all saw this on television, it, Russia completely destroyed this city, completely crushed it, flattened the city. And here's the pictures of the buildings. This is the aerial view, n the next picture. 95% of the buildings in Mariupol are completely gone and destroyed. 325,000 people evacuated, got away safely. 75,000 people were killed in this. And there are, you know, even in war, there are rules of war, and rule of war is you don't kill civilians, and you don't bomb hospitals, and you don't bomb schools, and you bo don't bomb infrastructure, and they've done all of those things. And how this is not a war crime, well, it is a war crime, we know that. And so I asked uh, Dimitro and, and Andre this, I said, how many people have died since this has begun? And I was shocked by the number, I suppose I could have looked it up, but they said, we've lost over a half a million Ukrainians. Half a million people, half a million of their countrymen have, have been uh, mercilessly killed, murdered. And, and so then we have Pastor Andre, and I said, why are you still in your city? And he says, because there's people still in my city. 
And even though the front is only 40 kilometers away, and even though we hear those bombs going off every day, and even though we might know we might be the next city, he says, I have, God has called me, and he's placed me in the midst of this adversity, in the midst of this trial, this conflict, and his church has gone. Are you ready for this? It's gone po post pre-war. It was 50 people. Today, he's got 500 people in his church every Sunday morning. It's growing because people are seeing this resilience and they're seeing this faith of this man that is committed to, to fighting for his, his city and fighting for his church and fighting for the kingdom of God. And he says, everything has changed in the midst of this conflict. He said, before when you preached the gospel in Ukraine, no one would listen to you. He says, now we go down to the train station because people are leaving. They're getting on trains and they're heading, heading west. And he says, we go stand on the train station dock. I have a picture here. And we go stand there. And we preach the gospel to these crowds of people we don't know. And we ask them how many would like to pray and invite Jesus into their heart. And every single last one of them says the prayer and invites Jesus into their heart. Because they're so desperate. They have nothing. They've lost everything. They're in a war zone. They're leaving everything behind. Their families and their homes and their schools and their jobs and their careers and their businesses. And the only thing they have left to hold on to is Jesus. And that's why this is so important, what I'm talking about today. That when the tough gets going, then the faithful are the people that have to really stir up. They have to embrace adversity, exercise patience. They have to engage in their faith, knowing that many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. Let's stand together, shall we? If you'd like a booklet to help you understand more about God's gift of forgiveness and reconciliation through Jesus Christ, please contact us, and we'd be happy to send you a free copy of the Book of Hope. Visit our website at www.churchoftherock.ca. Thank you for watching, and God bless you.